Gary has a great idea about how to make government grants to nonprofits transparent so that you and I can really see and know how our tax dollars are being spent. We also discuss new House Speaker Mike Johnson. We give Ted Cruz a mild rebuke, and we look forward to a very special guest next week. In the meantime, my name is Kevin Cookagee, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. This is a uh, creed. There you go. Yeah. See, I told you it was easy. Oh yeah, this is my. Uh, I, I, I remember the lead singer. His name's Scott. I can't remember his last Stapp. name. Scott Sap. No Stap. S T A P P. His dad was a Baptist pastor, I believe. So uh, I don't think it was Baptist. Pentecostal. So, so when this came out, we all thought this was a Christian record. <laughs> <laughs> I know so many people who called this. A- Christian music, people who tried to justify their listening to it, who felt guilty, I think, and they wanted to say, but it's Christian music. I'm like, no. I don't care what anybody says. This is my high school right here. And, uh, you know, Creed got some some smack, like kind of Nickelback, you know, people would kind of mock. I Yeah, but 35 million records is I love 35 Creed. million records. Yeah, I uh, I like Creed a lot. Yeah, there's some really good material. Uh, and I think it, I think it stoked our producer. I think when I sent him that music, he's like, "Ooh, <laughs> he was happy creed? to hit the play button." Yeah. yeah, let's let it go at least through the chorus. Man, this is taking me back. Driving my, driving my red Ford Tempo through my small town. <laughs> tempo. <laughs> this is not Ford Tempo music. <laughs> We're head banging right now in the studio. Love it. You know, if you pay attention to sports, the Texas Rangers. That's are, my jam. That so that that's me right there. Kevin. Well, good. That's, so that's, I, I thought that would be easy. I didn't think I was teeing you up for a fail if I said this was easy. I mean, when you sell thirty-five million records, if you didn't hear of them, you would have been living under a rock, right? Yep. Yeah. The Creed also has a connection to the Texas Rangers. Did you see that? You know, they're in the World Series now. Yes, I saw that. But earlier in the playoffs, Exciting. They, um, the Texas Rangers were playing that throughout the playoffs in the locker room, and they kept winning. They had won like seven playoff games in a row, and then they had the bright idea of bringing the band, who's actually going on a tour, right? They've, they've gotten back together. They're on a tour this fall. Bringing the band to their first uh, home playoff game against the Astros, and they lost. So everybody said, no, no, don't have Creed come back to this game. <laughs> Love the Rangers. I've always been a Rangers fan uh, growing up. Of course, he was with the Astros, uh, well, the Mets originally for a year or so, and then the Astros and then the Rangers, Nolan Ryan. is my just a huge fan growing up. And uh, favorite image, I mean, is Nolan Ryan beating the hell out of Robin Ventura on the pitcher's mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Nolan Ryan, uh Total different era, right, of yeah. baseball. And that was also when they left starting pitchers in for like 130 pitches. Nah, that's right. No pitch count restrictions. Yeah. Well, Gary, I know you're going to talk about um, a great initiative that you're working on for next legislative session, but I want to talk about something more uh, philosophical to get us off the ground today. I received, as I'm sure you do all the time, these political emails 
from candidates, uh, candidates raising money. Every time there's an issue that, you know, somebody says something on the news and the next thing you get is a fundraising email from that particular politician and, you know, just delete, delete, delete. Oh, yeah. Especially now, all of the, uh, I stand with Israel. Here's a donate button. <laughs> there's a like, lot. Like, please. <clears throat> so the, the latest one, actually that I got uh, was from Senator Ted Cruz. And disclaimer, I think our audience knows or should know by now that I was uh, state chair for Senator Cruz, had a very uh, good relationship with Ted Cruz, and I don't have a bad relationship with him, but I, I want to criticize him on something uh, that I got this week so that everybody knows that I'm dealing honestly and fairly, not just picking my picking my winners and losers. I'll, I'll challenge anyone who says something that I think is incorrect. Uh, I'll read first his quick little email, then I'll give you my reply. Breaking news, Senator Cruz has announced the launch of his book, Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. In this explosive exposure of the far left, Senator Cruz also delivers a clear plan to defend America against the ceaseless woke assault. Then he goes on to talk about this assault in our universities, public schools, etc., all of which is true. But you know what bothered me about that title of that book? Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. Hmm. Do we have any clock? Yeah. <laughs> Put that in. My question, and I would ask this to Senator Cruz, is why do politicians in the media always qualify the communist worldview as cultural Marxism? Hmm. Is there any other kind? Marxism is cultural by definition. In fact, to say cultural Marxism, in my view, is redundant. There is, is there a non-cultural version of Marxism? I, 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 Gary, when I think of that, I think of using terms like it's deep, Kevin. white lie, right? A lie is something that's untrue. Right. A white lie or a little white lie is the same mm -hmm. as any other lie. Yeah. Why the extra words? Ted Cruz is obviously a brilliant attorney and politician, but I think he frequently comes across as a little clunky and inauthentic outside of the political theater. And one of the reasons for this, in my view, is that he and many others persist in making these artificial distinctions. And in this case, that's between Marxism and cultural Marxism. Indeed, the, even the political theater in which Ted Cruz operates is part of the culture that Marxism has damaged and seeks to destroy. So this making of artificial distinctions is very similar. Um, I've mentioned it before. I come from a music background, and most of my music history has been in the Christian music business over three decades. And they've done the same thing. Christian music, from you know, distinguishing Christian music from music in general. And I think it's an effort that damages the credibility and certainly impedes the impact of those seeking real influence, whether in that case in the music in the music sphere or real cultural influence. We even talked about that at the beginning of this episode with Creed. A, a lot of people, I think, Christians wanted to call Creed Christian music. Well, why did they want to do that? Because they knew that Creed's music was legitimate with the entire world of music listeners. And so they were trying to say, well, maybe they're saying some things that sound kind of Christian and because Scott Stapp's father was a Pentecostal pastor. Mm -hmm. But that, that kind of proves the point. There shouldn't be this artificial distinctions, and I think that we surrendered enormous territory by yielding language to those who, uh, in this case, going to Senator Cruz's books, uh, the Marxists, who by definition are always seeking to change the culture. So, uh, Ted, I would say it's just Marxism. And if I were titling your book, I would say How to Defeat 
Marxism in America. And their class is your lesson for the week. Yeah, because using a phrase like that and decrying something like cultural Marxism in and of itself is almost suggesting that there is a good kind of Marxism. Or even any other. I mean, <laughs> right? Or, or, yeah, but but even, but even, even further like, than any other, it's like, well, I'm, I'm going to speak out against cultural Marxism. But not the other kind. Not, not the other kind, if, yeah. If, so if, if there's Marxism— Not the other potentially good kind. Okay, so here's a question. That, I think you've hit the nail on the head as, uh, as to the point I'm trying to make. Are we saying that academic Marxism is good? Or acceptable, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It, in the academy is where they advance these anti-American, anti-Christian notions more than any place else. So why not defeat? And and so then when you start peeling it back that way, you have to instead of instead of attacking Marxism, then you have to attack cultural Marxism. You have to attack Marxism in the academy, Marxism at work, Marx. You know, no, just attack Marxism. Yeah. No, that's good. I- Appreciate you bringing that up. I think the words that we choose and the way that we state things are important, and um, and I think that's why we should be also paying attention, like you are here, uh, to the words that are coming out of people's mouths. They mean they mean something. Um, well, I sort of wanted to go into something today that we haven't really talked about yet on this show, and I've, I I almost feel like I want to preface by saying, you know, I've not done the complete deep dive yet and I feel like I'm I'm beginning a conversation right now and I think we're probably going to talk about this a lot more maybe leading up or especially as we get into legislative session we had a great um powwow yesterday with our team on ideating some things that we felt like either are going to come up in next year's legislation. Sorry. What what does that mean? <laughs> Brainstorming. Brainstorming. Okay. Yeah. Storming the brain. Um and, and potentially what may be coming up in next year's legislative session, which we may need to support or oppose. And also, maybe what are some things that we think are really important that we'd like to see addressed. And and one of the things that came out, actually, in conversation this week that I'm, I'm going to be honest, I haven't really thought a lot about. Well, in one sense I have, and I'll get into that. But the transparency of nonprofits but specifically the transparency of nonprofits that take public money. And I don't think we're thinking about that enough. So, for example, because you and I had the privilege of talking about this five minutes before we went, uh, hit the record button, can you give us an example of maybe one time last year when legislation, you know, kind of give an example of when it happened so that we know we have kind of a framework or a frame of reference for Sure. Um, so every year, you know, I'm, 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 this is completely off the top of my head, and I, there's, I don't believe there's anything nefarious about this, but it's just a great example. So wait, one more, one more interruption. Sorry. Yeah. Since you said this is like, how did you begin this discussion? You, you haven't thought about it deeply enough yet, right? Yeah, you haven't put all the pieces together. Opening the conversation. <clears throat> and so because we're opening the conversation, I think it's important that our audience know that. Unlike normal, I'm not sitting up with my nose in my computer. I'm, I'm relaxed here. I've got my legs crossed. I'm leaning back. <laughs> I'm looking at Gary, and I'm so excited to just have this conversation. Yeah, you're in a very uh, contemplative posture. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, it's yeah. a big word. <laughs> um, are you suggesting that I normally do not use big words? <laughs> no, I'm not suggesting okay. that at all. I'm just checking. I'm just, it was a big word. Just... Contemplative, four syllables. Yeah. 
uh, or contemplative. It's like potato, no, potato. No, 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 no. It's contemplative, okay. definitely. Okay, just checking. <laughs> so we agree. You know, so for example, uh, an, that I can think of off the top of my head from last year, every year in the governor's budget, you know, these aren't only expenses, expenditures for state agencies. We are also creating opportunities where the state, just like the federal government does, issues grants. Um, and those grants could be, you know, made in the public and private sector. Uh, more often than not, they're made to nonprofits, for example. And this might have been two years ago, actually. Um, the governor, uh, Governor Bill Lee here in Tennessee, had a, a big initiative for foster care. And so the state um, had a big push marketing agenda for foster care. And one of the partnerships was with the, I believe, the Tim Tebow Foundation or and if it wasn't the Tim Tebow Foundation, I know at the very least it was some new foundation that Tim Tebow was a part of, but I believe it's it's the same foundation. And the state granted that nonprofit $1.2 million, you know, for foster care. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes the number is much, much higher, but that's just an example. Sure. Well, I, I think what's important for people to know is this is – we've got to think about this as – um, taxpayer money. This is tax dollars. These are mm-hmm. your these are your dollars. And right now, as it stands, when that money is granted out of the budget, leaves the state coffers and goes into a nonprofit, everything from then on is black. You cannot nonprofits are not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Mm-hmm. You, they are not subject to open records request laws. So they're and, and, you know, some of these grants require some reporting. The problem is there's no ability for the public to have any kinds of, of records requests or, or eyesight, I should say, maybe, into this organization or how they are spending their money or um, things that are happening. Like right now, you know, because we fund the government, we can send a public – uh, an open records request, and we can get uh, email uh, information and conversations that have happened between vendors. We can look at public contracts, all these sorts of things. We can't do that with a nonprofit, though the nonprofit is taking public dollars. And, and you know, there are some folks right now thinking very ill of me because, you know, well, aren't you contradicting yourself? Didn't you try to, pro- uh, you know, protect nonprofits in the past? And don't you run to nonprofits? Yes. So let, let me draw the distinction there. Number one, our nonprofit does not take public dollars. Mm-hmm. We are big difference, right? Huge difference. We don't take public dollars. I I don't suspect we ever will or have any interest. I can't imagine a scenario in which we take public dollars. We're funded by private individuals, and I think that if we did take public dollars, I can imagine there'd be a a, a great deal of people that would want to know mm-hmm. what we're doing with that money. Sure, and but. What we have fought against, and and I, I want to juxtapose the two, you know, the state of Tennessee has been very interested in what it calls the transparency of <laughs> 501c4s if a 501c4 says the name of an elected official. You know, so if if Tennessee stands, says the name of an elected official within 60 days of an election, well, there are certain laws now in place that were passed two years ago. Uh, run by Representative Sam Whitson. This is one of his legacy pieces of legislation right here in Williamson County. Which is, <clears throat> by the way, it's good that it's not 60 days before the election. 
That's right. <laughs> yeah, because so you can mention his oh, name. I'd be in big trouble. Yeah, otherwise, um, you have to describe him like by his face and his cl- the clothes he wears and where he lives. Yeah, I could say his district. You know, the the representative from you know the whatever district of Williamson County. Um, yeah, you can't say their 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 name or their likeness, or you're possibly opened up <laughs> name or likeness, Kevin. I just thought of something funny. Can't show you his picture, right? But wait, you can't even show the picture. Name or likeness. Okay. How about weight? <laughs> right? Maybe that might be... Is that likeness? We're, 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 we're angling close, maybe, to likeness. All, all if we... I don't know. Wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be incredible if we say the representative... The, the 205-pound representative from right. such and such district. That would kind of be fun, actually. It would. Sorry to get you off track. Yeah, and I've got to reset my brain here. So... You know, this, the state was interested in that scenario where, well, gosh, if a nonprofit is, is talking about the activities of the state, well, we deserve some transparency. You know, the state, that nonprofit now has to report their expenditures, you know, to the state. But what I'm not hearing is, well, what about nonprofits that are actually taking our tax dollars? Apparently, Kevin. No one's interested in that kind of transparency. At least the government's not, right? So if George Soros has an organization that, you know, and his his links are deep and wide, that most people don't even understand or know how many there are, but if a George Soros-connected organization, nonprofit, takes a grant from the government, it can use it for whatever end it desires, and, and we know the types of things that George Soros is going to spend his money on, whether it's putting uh, you know, progressive leftist district attorneys in office or doing something to undermine and to create chaos. His organization can get a grant. Let's just use you know, $10 million, a $1 million, whatever it is. And once he's gotten that money, he can completely spend it not only in a way that we can't see, but he can use that money in a way that would not otherwise be permitted by the government to spend its money, right? He can use it in discriminatory fashion. He can use it in a, you know, this is a private scenario, so you can't hold me to constitutional standards. And so what you're recommending is that for any organization that gets money, which would include good organizations as well as bad organizations, that they have to disclose what they're doing with that money as if they, because really what you're saying is they're an agent of the state in that regard. Uh, they're fulfilling abs- a state purpose. I am saying in, in that particular instance, they literally are a state agency. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, and I, and you know, if, if I were to draft a bill like this, I would go beyond reporting requirements. I would say that that nonprofit now, just as a public entity, is subject to open records requests. Mm-hmm. As if you are going to take my tax dollars then just like any other public entity, I should now be able to issue an open records request uh, for emails, for communications, for whatever is is happening around your operations because those operations are being funded by our tax dollars. And I, you know, I, again, let me qualify. I understand not everything is nefarious, but there's a lot of opportunity here. And it it is very beneficial to a government to, to take pools of money and to avoid a, any any semblance of accountability or to avoid the need for some additional piece of legislation to just shove that money into a nonprofit and then, well, you know, you let the private sector do the work. It, and honestly, 
you could take this beyond nonprofit because we're talking about now all of the these uh, public-private partnerships that yes. we've created. We talked about that for the, with the toll road bill. We've got all these private entities now, you know, sort of pooling state money and user fees together and, you know, doing all so. Well, we've talked it, about it, it on, on a national perspective, too, with regard to censorship, right? right? The federal government is doing the same thing. It's censoring not directly, but it's censoring through private platforms, right? Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, where we know, and it's been it's been made very clear in the last couple of years, that the government is not only um, carrying out unconstitutional activity through its through its agents, and these are clearly their agents, but they're asking federal courts to allow them to continue to do it. Right. Yep. This is the subject of lawsuits. So what you're talking about, although specifically has to do with Tennessee nonprofits or, or any nonprofit that takes money from the Tennessee legislature, right? The Tennessee taxpayer, its implications are broader because we see this happening um, in all this all the realms of government, Gary. We see the government saying, Okay, they've been shining a spotlight on us, the citizens, for too many years now. We need to find another way to carry out our devious acts. So what better way to do it than to act like the government through a non-government entity? That's right. And so I want to I give a specific example as to, you know, again, all I'm doing right now is um, I'm making conjecture and I'm asking questions, right? Because, again, we've got a lot more work to do on this. But we just got out of a, a special session which the governor called for, you know, on gun control, red flag laws, mm-hmm. all the things. We, and we talked you know, in great detail about yep. that. And coming out of it, you know, the, the feeling is, and I, and I think it, that's true by and large, we won. You know, there, there were no red flag laws. There, was, there were only four bills passed, one of which was the appropriations bill that I'm going to talk about in a minute. But not a whole lot happened outside of a tax credit on gun safes, you know, codifying an executive order, which we could also go into discussion about that. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a, a reporting bill on human trafficking, which has zero to do, do with, yeah. with the the point of the call to begin with. So, but what we haven't dove into, right, is this appropriations bill. Mm-hmm. So we, we communicated to everyone, okay, we won. We didn't, by the way, we did not address the potential Trojan horse of mental health because, again, and I... I'm not suggesting that we don't have any mental health issues. I am suggesting that whatever issues we do have are incredibly complex and deserve robust debate, not a one-week special session. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and I believe those things are going to come back up in our session in 2024, so we'll see what happens. But if you look at the appropriations bill, which no one's really – we've not really talked about. There are additional things that happened in the in the budget that came out of special session than just the bills that were passed. And I'll give an example. Let's see. There were 17 sections of the bill. Okay. Section 4. And, and I'm just going to use this as an example. In addition to any other funds appropriated by the provisions of this act, there is appropriated the sum of $12,131,000 non-recurring, so a one-time chunk. To the Department of Mental Health. Now, let me again. Let me back up. The message is: Yay, we avoided the the you know the, whatever. We didn't do anything with mental health. We have time, and we don't have to. Yet, we didn't pass a bill, but we just put twelve million dollars into mental health. 
So we appropriated $12 million to the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services for the sole purpose of providing sign-on and retention bonuses to prospective or current behavioral health professionals who work for a Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. And here, we, here you go. Contracted treatment agency. Mm-hmm. Before you get to that second part, are you saying, for our audience so we know, are you saying this is money that was already in the previously approved budget? This is just an allocation that was not heretofore made because they didn't pass new legislation, right? That's that's yes, I believe that's correct. It goes on to say this twelve million dollars. It says. Um, the Commissioner of Finance and Administration is authorized to adjust federal aid and other departmental revenue accordingly. Hmm. So so this is a <laughs> taking from another Yeah, so this is a mix of state taxpayer money and federal dollars that have come into the Department of Mental Health Services. But but the interesting thing is so while we're out here talking about okay, we've we've avoided any legislation dealing with mental health and any potential pitfalls yet under the table in the appropriations bill, we've got $12 million going to the Department of Health and funding prospective or retention bonuses to prospective or current behavioral health professionals, not employees of the state, right, but services of a contracted treatment agency, mm-hmm. which a lot of times, by the way, are guess what, Kevin? Nonprofits. Oh, yeah, of course. So... So this is a, a great example of money in, a, in this big appropriations bill that's now going into mental health. And, and so wouldn't you know, and I won't get into details, but wouldn't you know, Kevin, that after the special session was over and after this $12 million appropriation was made, that there are nonprofits advertising retention bonuses uh. for mental health professionals. So where do you think are these new nonprofits or one of them is a brand new? Oh nonprofit. my gosh. In talk about inviting corruption. Yes. Right? Somebody goes and says, Oh 12 point what? 12 uh 12.1. 12. 12.1 12. million. million dollars. Let me get some of that, right? I'll go set up a nonprofit and start holding myself out as Yeah. And you know one one example, and and I wanna so, so what we what we want to investigate deeper, we want to see, okay, how big of a problem is this really? And I, I believe it's huge. And, and by the way, as we've looked into this, this issue, of course, is not unique to mental health. I mean, the issue of government grants into the nonprofit mm-hmm. world is in our elections. Yep. It's in our health care. And have mercy, it's all over education. Right, all of these nonprofits that want to provide all these great services to your children, whether it be services, yeah, whether it be after-school programs or counseling services or you know whatever it is, there are hundreds of millions of dollars going to nonprofits under the auspices of providing state services, but it's all being done with taxpayer money, and once it gets into that nonprofit, you can see none of it. So. When that transfer, even before the transfer, what has to happen legislatively for that money to even be appropriated in in the first place? I mean— Well, it's got to pass the budget. So the governor submits an annual budget to the General Assembly, and the General Assembly has to pass that budget. But in this case, 
this was an amendment or or this was a bill this was an this was the appropriations bill of the special session so it's like passing a budget they 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 went back into a special session and they passed a budget so it is new money well it's an it's a new appropriation it's a new appropriation from, from the existing budget from existing funds okay yes that, so that's what i some of which are also per this statement federal funds and it sounds like the other part has been allocated to something else and that they have to redirect it, didn't? That's right. Where were you talking about what that? They're, that's what they're doing. So that I'd be curious to know where that's coming from too, Yeah. right? What, what if that money, if, if there's no further uh, directive, well, I get, well, I'll give they you, could pull it from anything? Well, I'll give you an example of that, Kevin. Um, section 8, and this is an interesting one. Section 8 of the Appropriations Bill earmarks what they call reversion money, so that's money that was in the coffers but has not been spent, right? And they're they're redirecting it. So it, this is reversion uh, ten care money, fifty million dollars going into mental health services into the Department of Mental Health, and this this is used so that twelve million was for retention bonuses for behavioral health professionals. This fifty million is going to the Department of Mental Health for the purposes of giving grants to community mental health agencies and contracted services. Guess guess who those are, Kevin? Nonprofits. Nonprofits. Now, what's interesting about this $50 million, this was explained on the Senate floor by uh, Chattanooga Senator Bo Watson. And as he explained the $50 million, this money actually is coming out of, and I and he didn't say this specifically, but I've heard this pool of money currently is somewhere between five hundred and eight hundred million dollars left over from COVID federal COVID money that came into the state. So the state's got you know upwards of eight hundred million dollars that came from the federal government for COVID that they haven't figured out what to do with yet. Okay, excuse me, I'm trying to lift up my chin off the floor. Uh, <laughs> and so eight hundred million. Yes, and can that not? That can't be given back. Can that not be given to taxpayers? Sure. As a credit against it taxes abs- that have already been paid? For me, franchise it, and excise tax. It right? absolutely could. But but so what they what they did in this appropriation was said, hey, we've got you know this eight hundred million dollars from the federal government. So we're gonna take fifty million of that money and we're gonna we're gonna put it into mental health. So again, my my point, what I want the audience to hear first is you thought that we went into special session and we didn't do anything concerning mental health. And we didn't. We didn't pass any legislation. But there are tens of millions of dollars, much of which, and I would, I would, I would garner to say most of which is coming from the federal government, either through COVID or some other block grant scenario that is now going into mental health. And guess what? It's, it's funding nonprofits. And so while there are reporting requirements for these grants, again, there's a there's a, a gray area here because these nonprofits are not subject to open records requests. So there, there's a, a large portion of their operations that you, the taxpayer, cannot really see what's happening with this money and what's and what's going on. And that's the concern that I have. And I, I believe that needs to change because when I think about healthcare, when I think about elections, when I think about education, I would be willing to bet 
that many of the nefarious things that we fight legislatively and that are happening culturally across across the spectrum are happening through the workings of these nonprofits, and it's being done with your money. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not being done by George Soros necessarily. It's being done with your, your money. money. <clears throat> okay. And by the way, if they took that eight hundred million dollars of COVID leftover money, do you know how much each person, each person in Tennessee would get if they just returned it to us? Yeah, what's that? Seven million people, roughly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. How much? One hundred and fifteen bucks. Yeah. I'd, per person. Yeah. So if you've great. got a large family. Yeah, like seven hundred bucks for yeah, me. Yeah, why, I, that's great. Why? Why shouldn't that be returned to the people? Yeah, that's that's eye opening, and I think it's a really important point. Uh, when you were talking about the transparency, Gary, it it reminded me of that conversation we had about six months ago on this program about inversion, and that's this process that's happened in the United States. You know, the government wants you to disclose everything that you're doing, right? They want transparency with regard to what you're doing, but we hear all the time and we see the government always trying to protect and obscure what it's doing. For example, you think of all of the all of the problems in the FBI and the CIA and the federal government, whether it's pursuing uh, Joe Biden's connections with China, whether it's per- pursuing Hunter Biden's connections and, and Burisma and all of that. What do we always hear from the Department of Justice or the CIA well, we can't disclose that, right? They they send that they send even when they're subpoenaed by Congress, they redact ninety percent of what they submit because of some whether it's an executive privilege, whether it's just a, an investigation, you know, or for national security reasons, we say that excuse given all the time. And yet our country was founded upon the notion that the government is only permitted to act with the people's consent. Mm. Now we live in a society which is greater and greater that the people can only act with the government's consent. So we, we've, come, we've entirely inverted the intention, and, and so you can see what happens. When you invert that intention, now the people are the ones that are afraid of the government rather than the government being afraid of the people, which was the original intent, because when the government is afraid of the people, the people are free. Yeah. As someone said, you know, when we were going through that battle with this other bill— you know, transparency is for government. Privacy is for people. You know, and that's that's really the way it's supposed yeah. to be. But but that's not the way a lot of the schmucks here in Tennessee see it that that hold these elected positions. Um, and they say it with a straight face. I mean, it's it's yes, we've it's been happening that's sad, so much. That's the sad part. Yeah, yeah, that people in government, when they tell you, "Oh, this is too important. We can't disclose this to you," they don't. Th- many of them don't even think they're doing anything wrong. We have to get them back to first principles. And I, you know, I, I won't go into the details here, but it's just worth saying, you know, when we when we were fighting all of this, one one of the things we fought during special session was in the governor's call in his proclamation, he called for a Medicare waiver to be signed. He called for the expansion of the ability for the state of Tennessee to utilize Medicaid dollars in such a way that we put that money into mental health services. And of course, again, this this was all under the auspices of gun control and mm-hmm. mental health. Well, <clears throat> interestingly, I doing again kind of a, a deep dive into that Medicaid waiver process. That waiver current so currently federal law prohibits a state from using Medicaid dollars for mental health services to outside of, of a to a very small degree, there are some stipulations. I think, 
a, a facility can have no more than 16 beds, something like that. It's so they, it's a very small chunk that's allowed for mental health. Wait, do you know why? Do we have any I, history? I actually don't. I, I don't know the reason behind that. But it sounds so specific that there must have been a danger that they were trying to prevent. And I, I, and I would be curious. I, I believe, you know what, actually, there there is something like that. And I completely, for, I read an article about that and I forgot what the, it was a really great explanation as to why. I have to go back okay, and look that we'll up. Look at it. But in 2018, CMS, that the, mm. the federal agency that manages Medicaid Medicare, created a waiver process by which a state could elect the waiver to open up the ability to spend Medicaid dollars on mental health services. Well, the interesting thing about that waiver that I found, and I found this, I think this is incredibly interesting. Again, because I'm, I'm not saying that no, again, hear me, not saying no one struggles with, with mental health. But what I am saying is I believe that that mental health and the, the quote-unquote mental health crisis there's a lot of potential for that quote unquote crisis to be used as a Trojan horse for mm-hmm. nefarious purposes. Yeah. The government is looking for more ways to control. And I believe this is one of those ways, right? Well, that 2018 waiver process came out of, this is fact, the 2016 Cures Act, which was the one of the very last the bills the Obama signed by Obama. Yep. And, that, if you go, I've got it pulled up in front of me. If you go read, just literally read the table of contents of the Cures Act, you'll see exactly what I'm what I'm saying. So the, the first half of the bill, Kevin, deals with every all of these things we talked about during COVID. And I'll get that. I'm going to get to that. And then the last half deals with mental health. Now, you're thinking... Well, how is a 2016 bill dealing with COVID? All right. Does it mention the word? It does not mention the word COVID, but COVID, 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 <laughs> COVID. But listen, listen to what it does mention. So the 2016 Cures Act, last act of Obama, creates technical updates. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. There's, sure. there's, there's a large table of contents, but creates technical updates to the clinical trials database. Um, it opens up development for novel clinical trial designs. It changes requirements for informed consent waivers and alteration of clinical investigations. Mm. Wait, there's more. It makes changes into this section is titled medical countermeasures in the innovation. And it, it deals with medical countermeasure guidelines, streamlining project bioshield procurement, paperwork reduction act waiver during a public health emergency. Mm, mm. Clare, listen to this. This is 2016. 16. Clarifying the Food and Drug Administration emergency use authorization. Oh my gosh. PUAs. Pre- Predictable review timelines of vaccines by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and encouraging vaccine innovation. So 2016, what was, was the date that this was passed? This was signed into law on December 13th. All right. So it's after we knew that Trump had won, right? So they weren't, That's Hillary, right. Hillary was not in place. Do we know how long this had been yeah, before Congress, was it something that was 
passed before the election? Was it something that was debated? I don't even remember talking about this. The the mental health piece, which I didn't get into, the last half of this act had been worked on for years. Interestingly, if you go back and look at the history, by the Republicans, the mental health portion of this bill was the compromise, I would say, by the Republican Party with the Democrats to quote-unquote deal with gun control. So the Democrats really wanted to do much more. They wanted to, to deal with all these gun mm-hmm. control measures. As a compromise, the Republicans were willing to deal with mental health. How can we work on mental health? And that was the big compromise between the parties. But but also what I'm getting at is what I think is incredibly interesting. The, the waiver process that we almost implemented in Tennessee – which all has to do with gun control, which all has to do with mental health, which I believe all has to do with more and more and more and more government control stems from the same 2016 bill that I believe set the regulatory scheme in place for the government's response to COVID. Which shows you that this is what I've, I've, I've had these conversations with people, not that we shouldn't be in the legislative fight uh, federally, but it shows you that the legislation that has been written, I remember Rush Limbaugh always used to say this. He, he used to say, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that when legislation is passed, it's not like it's been cobbled together by legislators, uh, you know, in, in, who have come into office and said, oh, we're going to create this piece of legislation. No, almost it's, never. It's been sitting in a drawer for years waiting until you have the political power, right, the majority that you need to pass the particular bill. That's what happened with Obamacare, right? It had been written for years and it was sitting in a drawer, thousands of pages, omnibus. And you talk about this this Cures Act, right? Yep. C-U-R-E-S. Correct. What does that stand for, by the way? Some, you know, always crazy acronyms make it sound like they're curing us. I don't know. It's, it's, it's actually called the 21st Century Cures Act. Okay. So this has not been put together by any of the legislatures. Any of the legislators, I guarantee you that the House, the Senate, none of those people had anything to do with crafting this. We are being governed not by our representatives. We're not being governed by the people that we elect. This is an administrative state, and it's always, not always, for a lot of our lifetimes has been an administrative state. And the people who represent us are figureheads by and large. And, and they now they would have a chance to stop this legislation if they understood what was going on, but many of them aren't even aware how much they are just figureheads. They're just tools. They're just robots in these positions. I don't want to, uh, so as we, I don't want to bridge into like another topic. We don't have time, but, but yeah. because you just said that, how, what kind of, what kind of speaker do you think this Mike Johnson guy is ah, I'm be? glad you brought it up. Um, I don't – I was hoping to get some inside scoops some, from some of my friends, and I couldn't get any inside scoops. So all I know is what has publicly, publicly been written, both by him, Mike Johnson, and the people around him. So the jury's out. His, his bio – to me, looks very good. Agreed. Right, he was an attorney for Alliance Defending Freedom. He worked with Kelly Shackelford, friend at uh, First Liberty. I didn't know that. Yeah, so um, you know they don't they don't work for the organization in the city in, in Dallas, Texas, for example. But First Liberty and Alliance Defending Freedom use lawyers all over the country in yeah. different jurisdictions. To, but he's fought a lot of religious liberty cases. He also wrote the brief for Texas v. Pennsylvania, 
which was the the election, election. integrity case. Yeah. And it's of, a, of which the state of Texas had no standing for the Supreme Court, <laughs> interestingly. Yeah. But he, his his brief was well, if you read the reports about it, I should I should be honest. I've not read the brief. I've read excerpts from the brief. It seems to be very well reasoned. There's no hyperbole in it, and he's not even making the claim that there was election uh, integrity issues. He's saying, if you look at the six states in which these strange things happened, it appears there's a problem, right? And so he was approaching it even from that very measured standpoint. And I think that's probably why he was able to get um, unanimous support from the Republicans. Which is incredible in, in this and in, in what we've been experiencing. And whether it's true or not, and this is why I say the jury's out, I don't want to speak too soon because I do not know him personally. I do not know enough about him from anyone that I know who's in D.C. However, he has made reference to the fact that it is God, he referenced Daniel 2.21, which we've talked about on here before, that it's God who chooses the times and the seasons, and it's God who appoints people and who removes people from power. So his, And he wasn't saying that arrogantly. He was just saying that these things happen by God's design. This wasn't me. Nothing special uh, yeah, about me. The, yeah. I, and I wasn't it's reaching— It's a very humble statement. Yeah, reaching for this, but— he was also very firmly convicted that this is why these things happen. And so we, he, he said that alongside the statement of, we therefore have a duty to honor God with our decisions. So hopefully, yeah. I, I, clearly a better choice than Kevin McCarthy. No, no, no question. And my thoughts at this point is, I, it, it feels like, it seems like he's the right guy and, and he's on the right side of, of many of the issues. The, the question remains, you know, I think I made a tweet, you know, proof will be in the pudding. And the, the main question is no matter Figgy what, pudding? <laughs> no, no matter what he believes, will he have the spine, you know, to, to be in that kind of a position and stand up against the powers that will come against him. Yeah. Cause it's, it, I mean, let's admit it, it would be incredibly difficult. It's being a politician the nature of political discourse is compromise, right? There's so there's there's going to have to be compromise. It's just what kind of compromise is going to be necessary to get these things to happen. And that's I think that's again is the proof is in the pudding. And since we're getting closer to holiday season, figgy pudding, <laughs> that will be the case. And he has a very short window to deal with these appropriations because that's and he seems again from public statements he seems to be taking the position that Chip Roy and the others mm -hmm. established in January with regard to regular order, right? Yeah. Breaking these appropriations into separate in, in, bills. Individual yeah. appropriation bills. So yeah. that's good. Uh, do you want to tease next week's guest before we... Yeah, close? next week, ladies and gentlemen, we will have John Cooper, lead member and founder of the band Skillet, who is now talking about a lot of the subjects that we talk about on this program He's written a new book, which is coming out, uh, I think, next week or the week after, right around the time that we have him on the podcast. So he has agreed to join us, and uh, we look forward to that. So that'll be a great episode. In the spirit of books, I also want to let our audience know there is a new book titled American Refugees, The Untold Story of the Mass Exodus from Blue States to Red States by my friend, Mr. Roger Simon, senior editor of the Epic Times. That is available for pre-order right now on Amazon and will officially release on November 14th. Yours truly plays a small role in the book, of which I am greatly honored. And so go to Amazon and check out American Refugees by Mr. Roger Simon of the Epic Times. Roger Simon, who we have the 
privilege of seeing a lot around our area, yeah. right? I I, th- I sat next to Roger for lunch at your election integrity event last year, um, and he's he's got a lot of energy for all the time that he's been in this fight. So really appreciate that. Yeah. Take care. Thanks, Gary. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. (laughs) ¶¶